0: This week on Hacker in the Fed, we talk about private data being leaked due to a misconfiguration and no one's listening to the researchers about the problem. We're showing the mindset of a hacker during a ransom negotiation. A cell phone provider is hacked for the ninth time in six years. There are 50 Chinese state hackers for every FBI cyber agent and using AI to help hack. And finally, we answer listener questions about the domain XYZ pen testing tools Impossible hacker in the Fed swag. Hector Monseger was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks.
1: Former ever FBI special agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks that caused up to
0: 50 million dollars in damages. A life in the shadows, cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, now working my entire career in cybersecurity, founding partner at Naxo. Joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsagor, former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with me and the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity actor. Hector, how's it going this week?
1: oh man it's going great it's uh it's been busy the weather's kind of crazy in new york one day it's chilly the next day it's kind of warm but i'm all right how about yourself
0: yeah no my, mine's the same way like i'll leave the house to go ahead and to work work it'll be cold and i have a sweatshirt on and i'm by the time i get to work it's uh it's pretty sweaty so oof yeah that's no good yeah so i don't know i should i should probably leave clothes at the office or something who knows
1: yeah man you're gonna have some like you know some shorts and uh one are those 1980s see-through tops. You know what I'm talking about with the holes in them?
0: I mean, those are all my tops you just described.
1: <laughs> man, those were the days. You know, sometimes I think about, like, how people were dressing back then, and it was pretty bizarre. Like, watching old music videos and seeing, like, those muscle shirts, you know what I'm talking
0: about? Yeah.
1: Oh, man, it was crazy. I
0: never went crazy with the fashion. I, you know, so it was, you know, always one of those things that I was... I'm not too embarrassed to look back. I did, though. I don't know if you ever knew this or not, but when I was mm-hmm. in the FBI, I kind of... Uh, I kind of did my fashion the, the way I, I i thought i should do it um i always wore like a dark colored shirt, suit and a white shirt uh and, and you know kind of a, maybe a colored tie of some sort uh that that was the extreme was, was my tie um i don't know i just kind of always felt that like showing up to somebody's door or saying that i was an fbi agent um there was like sort of a persona that they wanted and, and i had buddies on the squad my buddy Ilwan was completely different he'd show up in a hawaiian shirt and shorts and, and yeah. flip-flops at someone's door. And, he, you know, a lot of times he'd have to, you know, spend 20 minutes trying to prove he was an FBI agent, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. Well, he sounded like he was kind of rocking the Mormon outfit and then he was kind of <laughs> a, a bit revolutionary with the tie changes here and there. Yeah. But, no, it, it, it is a good look, though. I mean, I, let me tell you, I would take it much more serious if you showed up in a suit rather than, you know, Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Ilwan was trying to be that that guy from Point Break.
1: Oh yeah, that's right. That's right.
0: <laughs> uh, Keanu Reeves character—I think it was named—but but, uh, but that—that's one of the big jokes in the FBI. If you can change someone's ringtone to Keanu Reeves saying, "I am an FBI agent,"
1: yeah, I could see that happening. So, that's cool.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, for the audience, it's always nice that we have put, now put banter back at the top of the show. Uh, people, uh, we got a lot of complaints about people not ha- we not having enough banter in the show. So
1: it's not our fault.
0: Not our fault. We changed it. We tried it. We're going back a little bit. And I think uh, you know this week we're doing stories and uh, things in the news, and I, and I think Hector and I will, you know, we, we like to pick stories that have a little bit more banter in them and, and something sure. that we can discuss. So let's jump into it, Hector. Let's do it. The first article we're going to talk about is uh, many public Salesforce sites are leaking private data. You sent this one over to me. What did you get from this this article?
1: Well, it's a great story. Big shout out to Brian Krebs. He always has uh, you know great reads, and he does his. Uh... Superb research, and of course, people that reach out to them and let them know of these kind of issues. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I'm not a Salesforce user. I'll be honest with you. Um, so I was I was a bit surprised that this was a thing. Um, I've read and experienced similar stories or similar scenarios where we may have had a clients that had like Trello, which is a great tool as well. And Trello boards you could make public, and theoretically you could search and find sensitive like roadmaps and data points or even passwords. So I knew that that was a thing for at least Trello, but I had no idea that Salesforce was leaking information. And basically, the gist of it is just a just a quick one liner for the audience here is that you know when you're creating you know organizations within Salesforce, you can make some of the stuff, uh, especially the uh, community websites, public. Now, some people may use those uh, community websites kind of like uh, you kind of use like a SharePoint, like a centralized place where you can store some information for the employees, for example. But now, if those are public, then anybody can read them. And as you can imagine, uh, the kind of information that gets leaked from that must have been devastating to at least some organizations.
0: Yeah, so I mean, really what this boils down to is there's a thing called Salesforce Communities, and, and that's used to make a website. And, and part of the aspects of this website is you can either have you know private logins where the data is protected and you have to log in to see, see specific things, or there's guest logins. And there was a researcher back in August of 21, who named Aaron Costello, Hector and I always like to shout out to security researchers. So uh, Aaron Costello, good find on this one. He published a blog post about, you know, this misconfigurations that allows people to log in as guests, uh, but get the private information. Um, From there, there was another security researcher named uh, Charin Akiri, And I am horrible with reading names and I apologize if I mess that one up. but, uh, But Charin built a program uh, who went out there and identified hundreds of uh, different organizations with this misconfiguration, and Charon was trying to reach out to people and reach out to companies that had this this leak, uh, and no one would take him serious. No one would. You know, a couple people, uh, you know, got back to him, but nobody really got. You know, would fix what's going on. And we're talking about he found flaws in the state of Vermont websites, uh, a Columbus, Ohio-based bank, Washington D.C. had five different public. DC health websites that were had this misconfiguration in it and just couldn't get out there. So you know, this researcher went to Krebs and showed Krebs what the flaw was and how vast it was, and uh, and Krebs was able to put an article out. So hopefully, this causes Salesforce to fix uh, the issue and let the people knowing that are running these uh, Salesforce community websites uh, to fix this flaw.
1: Yeah, and you know. <laughs> Sometimes a a situation like this is—it's hard to categorize, right? Because it's not necessarily a flaw; it's a feature. And I could be wrong here. Again, I'm not a Salesforce user, but I'm assuming that when you're creating community sites, Salesforce gives you the option to make it authenticated only, and then uh, optional guest access. It's clear that you know what was what was the core issue here is that a lot of these organizations had created these community sites and actually had to get access enabled, right? Which is problematic and which allowed the, these researchers here, big shout out to them, on identifying and then trying to, you know, put together some research on exactly, you know, the the risks and, um, you know, pe- potential abuses, right? From a researcher's perspective, I can see why both of these guys had an issue getting responses from organizations. Imagine a scenario. Imagine a scenario where, you know, you. Especially in healthcare, healthcare is highly regulated. You're in healthcare, you have some community site up, um, you have employees, maybe contractors accessing those community sites, and then you're getting a random email from Left Field, like, "Hey, by the way, here's what I found, and um, you know, here's the information that's leaking, right? Social Security numbers, etc." From the perspective of the client, and I've seen this come from at least a few clients. They don't know if this is a ransom attempt. They don't know if this is uh, just a, a troll um, or a social engineering engagement, right? I think that what a lot of these organizations need to do, and it should be some sort of policy or, or maybe like, um, I know there's like a securitytext.org that kind of you know pushes folks to create a text file on your web server um, where you could reach out and try to identify a security contacts. It's possible that the researchers reached out to the wrong people. Hence, a lack of response.
0: I will say that's a huge issue. That was a big issue when I was in the FBI. We'd get in some information. I I, I remember a case I got one time. Information came in and it was a flaw in CBS's website or a hacker had been in there or some, some information where CBS's website was was vulnerable to attack or had been attacked. And I could not get a hold as an FBI agent of anyone over at CBS. I didn't know who to reach out to. I didn't find the right contact. No one would return my calls. And so you know what I did? What? What did you do? I called Les Moonves. Nah. Get the fuck out I I swear to god I did. I said, "Well, screw this. I'm going to go right to the top." <laughs> and I got I finally got a hold of his secretary. I said who mm-hmm. I was and obviously she didn't, you know, you always I said, "Call Google the FBI, call back and answer me." She did. And oh shit, did I get the right people on the phone? Um, so mm-hmm. I went for trying to find some security guy over there that I could talk to, to talking to uh, Les Moonves and the CTO of CVS, and it no. forged a relationship uh, from there. From there, you know, so if they, you know, something came up at CVS, you know, they, they needed the FBI, they'd call me directly. So it was, it was, it was interesting. But, but this is a huge problem of when a researcher finds an issue of getting hold of the right people.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely an issue, and I've seen it a lot in. Out in the wild, even when I even when I was a bad guy, you know, or considered a bad guy, I would identify vulnerability in uh, a website or an organization that I found to be sensitive. And I'm like, you know, let me try to reach out to somebody. And even back then, it was worse. Like, who are exactly emailing? Webmaster, ads, domain.com, info, right?
0: Yeah, well, now you at least have LinkedIn to try to find somebody. But, but yeah, back then, you didn't have anything like that.
1: No, no, definitely not. So, yeah, so i just kind of reading through this story. It seems like this is a feature. Maybe it's a feature that doesn't need to be a thing or probably needs to take a few steps before it's being enabled. But a big shout out to, the, to these both, re, uh, both of the researchers for kind of like pushing it and getting it known out there. Uh, I saw the story, I found it fascinating and I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, you know, Krebs published it.
0: Yeah, I found it interesting that part of the article talked about how the DC, uh, the, the healthcare uh, sites mm-hmm. down there, they had hired a third-party vendor to check their websites, and they came back clean, and it still had the same issue into it. So, Craig didn't, didn't name uh, who the, the third-party vendor was, but, well, yeah,
1: egg on your face. not I could touch on this from the pen testing perspective. One of the biggest issues that I'm seeing, and this is for everybody in the audience that, that has to hire a third-party pentesting company or similar, this is my message to you. Scoping is extremely important. And so if you have, let's say, an, a web application and you provide, the, the I would say, the URL and, and API endpoints to your third-party pentesting company and that's your scope, the only thing they're going to test, right? Like they're going to test within that scope and that's it. They're not going to go beyond beyond scope because then that kind of uh, complicates the matter. It could be a legal issue as well now let's let's put ourselves in the shoes of the DC health websites. They hire third party vendor, a uh, pen testing company, they say, look, here we have a community site uh, it's running on Salesforce. Cool. I've done pen tests against Salesforce in the past, and um, aside from you know maybe some misconfiguration mis- issues, the scope is very like bare. there's like there's not much aside from a URL. If they're asking for like a black box engagement, then I'm looking at a login page and that's it.
0: So a black box, that, that's when you have no other information except for maybe, you know, hey, this is our company website. You, you have no other details, right?
1: Exactly. So and we could just kind of define what those are. So when you have a black box engagement, all you're providing to the, uh, to the vendor, um, if any at all, in this case would be like a URL. Here's our community site, figure it out. Now, if they're looking at a login prompt, I mean, the, the testing is going to be quite limited. If the researchers or the practitioners in charge uh, knew about this guest kind of like a quasi-backdoor scenario, then they would have tested that and saw that. But now it becomes a problem for the, for the pen testers. Now they're like, wait, but this is a feature. Are they aware of this feature? Is, is that part of the pen testing
0: process to do a little bit of research? If I know I'm going against Salesforce, let's say... I was going against this in, you know, late 22, it, you know, the, you know, Costello had published his blog in August of 21, you know, maybe you find it, maybe you don't, I'm not saying, you know, you would find a, a blog about this, but, but maybe do you research the product to see if they're what, what the community is talking about, or is it just, you know, using tools?
1: No, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it depends on where you're at in your career. You know, if you're like an entry level pen tester, you're going to be using the burp suites of the world. You're going to be using um, different tools for auditing the web application. Um, you're going to use like uh, uh, brute forcing tools to brute force the web server, right? So You're going to go through all of that. But there's, there's an element to the testing where some of it, in fact, a lot of it will be manual. Can I log in with like a default credential? Like let's, Let me try admin at domain and password, password 1234, whatever, right? Either try to forgot username or forgot password prompts you're going to see what kind of emails you're getting back. Um, are the emails sent from SendGrid or are the emails sent from like an internal mail server? Do the email headers contain um, the IP address for that mail server? What is running on that mail server? So, you know, there's a lot of things to look at uh, from the pen tester's perspective. Now, I, I kind of want to go back to like, uh, you know, this this uh, this impromptu glossary here. So you, when you when you approach... By a client and they're asking for a black box engagement or assessment you're getting no or too little information about the target maybe a url and that's that sometimes i have clients say hey hector um here's my domain figure it out right so now i have to do dns enumeration and i have to do ssl certificate enumeration etc cetera, etc cetera. it's a little bit different when they're coming to you for a gray box or white box the so gray box is a scenario where they provide you enough information to engage the web application but they still kind of want you to figure out the rest and a white box is when they provide you full url full documentation and even credentials to log into the application and you know engage okay and there's different pros and cons for each one
0: yeah i, I mean i think we could dive deep into the whole pen testing world i think we could go do a whole episode on it so and you know what we should do we should probably have recursion back on and, and you, you guys dork out about uh about uh, pen testing because i know the audience has a lot of questions about you know how to hire pen testers what exactly are they going to get out of it and so yeah let's definitely put that on the books as an, as an upcoming episode
1: yeah let's do it
0: so the next article i sent over to you hackers claim vast access to western digital systems so there's a hacking group that broke into western digital western digital is a uh, media they make hard drives and flash drives and that sort of sort of thing And they're demanding a minimum of eight figures in ransom. What I found interesting in this article is we're not hearing much about from Western Digital, but we hear a lot from the hackers. Um, And so it's definitely interesting insight into what was going on. They're claiming they stole around 10 terabytes of data from the company and that they're still in the company's system. Um, it seems like the uh, art, article, what, the, the author of the article, you know, had direct access to the hacker or someone claiming to be the hacker. Just interesting insight into, you know, why they think they should get the money and, and that sort of thing. So they decided not to use ransomware. They're just going to, you know, publish this information if they, they decide. Uh, maybe that's a trend. Maybe we're going away from ransomware again because people are getting around it. And it's really just the exfiltration of data.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, let's look at a ransomware campaign, right, or scenario. You have the initial entry, um, and that could be through anything, right? It could be through social engineering. um, It could be through a USB stick. It could be through an insider threat. And that payload, um, you know, will do a whole bunch of different things. But the idea really is, one, you know, can it leverage current privileges to get admin access on the machine, or can it move laterally? Okay. Now, once you get past that, the next step is identify sensitive files, encrypt them, and then, of course, exfiltration or exfiltration might come out first and then encryption. It all depends on how it's coded and, you know, what the goal of the attacker is. Okay? Exfiltration, regardless of how, you know, whether the attackers went through a ransomware payload or they just sleuthed around an internal network or a cloud service and just exfiltrated as much as possible. The exfiltration is, is, the, is the part that hurts everybody. And it hurts the organizations themselves because now you have to deal with the fact that one, you were breached. Getting breached sucks. But two, now you have your intellectual property and sensitive documentation in the hands of someone else. Now, where does that leave you? It leaves you in a situation where one, you know, you have to deal with, you know, the potential brand reputation issues that comes from an attack like this, regulatory issues. But then, of course, if we're talking about intellectual property, now we're talking about, you know, a potential business impact that goes beyond what, what's been discussed already. It, it's scary stuff, and breaches happen. Trust me. Everybody gets breached.
0: One of the things I found interesting is they're claiming to have, like I said, 10 terabytes of data. From a victim standpoint, that's a lot of data moving out of their network. But then also from the bad guy side, that's a lot of data to store. Like that, that, That's going to be costly just finding a place
1: to store that, right? Well, if you would ask me that, and that's a great question. But if you would ask me that question, you know, 10 years ago, the answer would be been like, oh, yeah, dude, absolutely. But now it's different. You have cloud providers just giving away storage in the terabytes. 10 terabytes? That that high? Trust me. If you create, let's say you, let's have, let's say you find a cloud service that gives you one terabyte. Well, all you have to do is split those uh, exfiltrated files into 10 pieces and create 10 cloud accounts. And there you go. That's your 10 terabytes. That's true. But then you also have sites like, you know, uh, Mega. And a lot, in fact, a lot of threat actors use Mega or similar for exfiltration.
0: Again, I, I liked the part where the the hackers talking to the author, and you know, he says, you know, we hacked into Western Digital to make money, uh, but these guys aren't picking up our phone calls. They won't answer. They just pick up the lines and hang up. They've even, you know, gone to emailing the executives, um, emailing them on their personal accounts, and they're just not getting anywhere. So, sort of a, a an odd, you know, evolution of going to, you know if the company's not gonna deal with you directly, let's go to the media and try to negotiate through the media. I say it's odd, but I mean you guys had a, a media head, right?
1: Yeah. I mean we had we had one guy that, that kind of interfaced with the media. At some point we all interfaced with the media in some capacity.
0: Was that new to you guys having a, a media type or, or had that happened in the
1: hacking world in the past? I'm sure it's happened in the in the hacking world in the past. I mean even going back to like the the masters of deception versus Legion of Doom back in, you know, back in the days. You know, you had folks that were in the media kind of interacting with them on IRC or on BBSs trying to get interviews. I mean, books were written back in those days. So, yeah, media, you know, journalists have interfaced with, with you know, bad guys in the past. It's not new. I mean, I'll be honest with you, if, if these guys are listening to this podcast, and I hope they are, you know, you, are, you guys obviously have the skill set to do some amazing things. Even if Western Digital were to come back and say, you know what, we're going to give you, you know, a million dollars, or ten grand, or fifty bucks, or a gift card, in the long term, that's 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 nothing, bro. That's nothing at all. You could take the same skill set and build a business and retire early and provide for your entire family for a generation over. Cybersecurity is basically like the, a gold rush right now, regardless of how you feel about it. So yeah, so these guys are listening, man. The, this is not even worth it. Um, you know, yeah, if you would have reported it, uh, quote unquote, ethically, they may have given you a thumbs up, but you know, you could have used that to, to, to build out a portfolio for yourself and put that towards a business. Right. So that's, that's my take on it. And it sucks. And I'm sure Western digital is sitting there with, you know, all sorts of attorneys and, um, all, all sorts of vendors trying to figure out how they're going to move forward because 10 terabytes more than likely included firmware and intellectual property. So as a business, they're in a very bad spot.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. These guys should be using their skills, uh, you know, for, for good and and not not you know. It, there's a lot of money to be had with these skill sets, uh, not on the criminal side of things. Oh yeah, one hundred percent, Hector. I don't even know what to say about the next uh, next article. Uh, I'll just read you a headline. So, T-Mobile discloses second breach of 2023. Uh, this one leaked account pins and more. This is our, you know, hacking the Fed's been around not, not so long. Uh, this is our second T-Mobile's been hacked story.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a big yikes. I mean, for a company that's in the telecom industry that we both know is highly regulated, um, the fact that, uh, do you have a total on how many breaches they've had over a period of time?
0: Two this year. The first one, we, we did that story, accessed 37 million customers. Um, but it's been nine, nine hacks or breaches into T-Mobile since 2018.
1: So just hear me out here. I myself found a remote command execution vulnerability um, in T-Mobile's parent company um, out of Germany called Deutsche Telekom. I reached out to their security personnel. I gave them step by step instructions on the vulnerability and how and how you know I was able to leverage it. And then you know they had a bug bounty program, um, at least Deutsche Telekom did, and um, they said that I was not eligible for a bounty. And they said thank you. They passed the issue and moved on with their lives.
0: This one only happened, you know, they only affected 836 subscribers, but, you know, they lost all their information name, contact information, account numbers, uh, T Mobile pins, social security, mm-hmm. date of birth, balance, everything. You know, it, it seems like the breach happened between February 24th and then T Mobile discovered it in March 27th. Um, for, so for over a month, the, you know, that, um, you know, the pins that are used to secure your, your, your SIM. And you think we're vulnerable. So, you know, they could have had SIM swaps in that month. You know, who knows how many other breaches happened, you know, because of this.
1: Yeah. And I would say for the audience here, the one thing you want to do if you are a T-Mobile subscriber, you know, you want to put a credit freeze on your social security number. Um, You want to make sure that any passwords are rotated. You want to make sure that you have secondary support pins and codes with T-Mobile support. Yeah, I agree.
0: the next headline is Chinese hackers outnumber FBI cyber personnel by at least 50 to one Ray testifies (laughs) Uh, and so so Ray is the director of the FBI Uh, he went before Congress and he's looking for funding for 2024 to expand the FBI's cyber um, division because of threats um, and he puts out some, you know, some stats out there that people might not know. Um, you know he says that uh, Beijing has stolen more personal and corporate data from the U.S. than any other nation. And one of his other quotes is uh, they've got a bigger hacking program than every other major nation combined and have stolen more of our personal and corporate data than any of these other nations, big or small, combined. So he's saying China is more dangerous than all the other nations put together.
1: Yeah, I believe it. When you compare uh, Russia's operations and the, the way they kind of deal with cyber um, or cyber operations rather versus like China, yeah, you might you might have um, you know different agencies in Russia that may you know may collect information, may collect intel. They may do different things. They may even be on the offensive. But a, a lot of what you hear, especially from the community is that they work sometimes in tandem or even ignore bad actors within Russia, and sometimes they work together, okay? we have heard many stories of that happening, where in China, it's more of, no, if you're going to do this, then you're going to be part of the military. You're going to be part of the Chinese government, and that's a major differentiator.
0: I don't know. I read this story, and, and I see what Ray, Ray wants to do, talking about other things. I don't know if it's money well spent. Should the FBI get more people? Absolutely. But, you know, 200 more cyber positions, yes, that's absolutely needed. Uh, but to compare the two things, uh, you know, the FBI is reactionary. You know, something happens and we investigate it. You know, something happens and, you know, or we're trying to, you know, expose, you know, ch- the Chinese hackers and something. Uh, you know, I personally think we need more people defenders. We need more cybersecurity experts out there, um, def- you know, putting defenses against this um, to just investigate yeah. it in name and shame because, you know we we can't really arrest people over in china there there's not nothing's going to happen if if you try to arrest put out a, a an arrest warrant for a you know a chinese government official
1: yeah no I, I completely agree like yes you know hire more um cyber positions at the fbi fantastic but this is something that you know is um you know part of a, of a much larger problem there are several and we've discussed this in many episodes and many podcast episodes here and and it's just not one singular issue right there's like Kids in high school are not getting taught cyber or cyber hygiene or security concepts before they get into college, where they have the the opportunity to maybe apply for a cybersecurity program or certificate. Okay. Then you have organizations that some are legacy, some are new, that they're not regulated. They don't have to deal with this. And if they get hacked, they get hacked. It is what it is. In some states, there's regulation. In some industries, there's regulation, but there's nobody really saying, like, hey, by the way, Step your shit up. Step your game up, because the reality is, we all play a part in the overall security posture of this country, and this applies to every other country that that's that you know our listeners are in. You know, if you're in Ireland and you're listening to this, uh, the same applies to you, and the same applies to your your national security. The thing with with China, and this is this is something that I learned going back to early two thousands when I first got into hacktivism. There was an incident where we had a, a U.S. spy plane get into an accident with a Chinese fighter jet, and um, literally the next day there was this massive warning online uh, saying, "Hey, we are the Chinese Hacker Union. We have fifty thousand hackers. We're ready to attack U.S. infrastructure." I thought it was BS. I thought it was nonsense until, like, you know, a couple of days later, we've seen dozens, and then hundreds, and then possibly thousands of websites all running IIS Windows. Microsoft IIS, um, they were getting defaced and compromised, and or just completely delted or deleted, and it was it was fascinating to see the number of people involved in something like that.
0: I bet we're getting a message. People don't know what deltree is.
1: <laughs> well, there's a command. If you're Windows, I'm not a Windows user anymore, but back in the days I used to use Windows, and there's a command on it called deltree. It's basically a delete tree. And it would delete, like, a tree of folders or, you know, a uh, directory structure. Mm. So, yeah, you know, you would have somebody break into your system and run deltree on a bunch of sensitive folders or directories and just, like, destroy the system. Kind of like how we have Wiperware now, you know? Wiperware is kind of like, you know, the big, ugly, bully brother of, like, the ransomware. Where all the Wiperware does is just, it just executes and immediately starts to destroy your system. Uh, that's kind of what people used to do manually with the deltree command and similar.
0: So one thing I found interesting looking through what Ray was saying to, to Congress is um, th- this quote is, we're investigating over 100 different ransomware variants, each variant with scores of victims, as well as a host of other novel threats posed by both cyber criminals and nation state actors. You know, based on what the articles we're seeing out, the, the ransomware is coming down and the, the encryption keys coming out. It really does seem like that, that ransomware has become a huge target of the FBI.
1: You know, it's one of those things that has been effective for these bad actors. And they've been able to scale operations. Um, if you were to go back in time when ransomware, I mean, ransomware is old in concepts, but we're talking about like maybe let's say five years ago when ransomware engagements were, were becoming more successful. People were actually paying these ransoms. You know, back then it was just like, eh, whatever. It's a one-off here and there. But it scaled dramatically once people started paying. And the bad actors were like, hey, wait, we could turn this into a business, right? Now, once you have like a SaaS product version of this, it totally overtook many of the other threats that are out there. So I, I understand the motivation. I completely get it. This is why I'm a big fan of CISA. Uh, we have talk about CISA all the time here. They're constantly pushing out security bulletins, letting people know, look, um, there's, a, there's a major you know, vulnerability that's being exploited. Here's what you need to do. Here's who you need to contact. Here are next steps. And if you need training, sign up for a training program, whatever, right? But yeah, it, it, it's tough because when you look at a country like China, and I know I'm rambling right now, but when you look at a country like China, information to them is gold, okay? Any information, any data set means something to them, especially intellectual property. So for those of you in the audience and you're running a business and if your intellectual property is stolen um, and it's going to break your business, you really want to be on top of this.
0: Yeah, no, China is not big into R&D. They just will steal all the, uh, the R, um, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, And, oh, sorry, we got a complaint about acronyms. R&D is research and development.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I saw a comment in, in one, of, uh, one of, I think it was uh, on Apple, and the guy was like, yeah, you guys use so many acronyms. I completely agree. Unfortunately, this industry is so full of acronyms and all sorts of weird vernacular and terminology And so we, you know, Chris and I, we become accustomed to it because to us it's almost second nature. But um, I'll definitely do my best. I'll do my part to kind of explain things uh, as we kind of go.
0: The last story here, Hector, is more of just kind of a shout out and, uh, you know, way to go, guys. You sent this over. The cyber police exposed an attacker in the sale of databases with personal data of citizens of Ukraine and the EU. Um, And so this is an article about um, the... Cyber Police of Ukraine. And, uh, and so it comes up as a page, the link that Hector sent over to me, comes up with a page that you know, Google has to translate. But really, it is, they call themselves the Cyber Police of Ukraine.
1: That's awesome. Well, first of all, before <laughs> we get into the story, big shout out to you for saying Ukraine and not the Ukraine, oh, okay. that's, that's what's up. Yes, the Cyber Police is dope. I think that, that, uh, that, you know, that they're doing a good thing. But you know what I found fascinating about this story? I'm sure you remember when I sent you an email, I was like, these guys are in the middle of a fucking war, and they're still, you know, taking care of business and doing their part to kind of curtail some of this stuff.
0: So apparently, this guy, with the attacker, was uh, had information from passport data, taxpayer numbers, birth certificates, driver's license, and bank accounts of over three hundred million people. Let me ask you. So I read a little bit of the story, and apparently, this guy, or is being accused of, um, selling the information to people in Russia. Uh, the Russian citizens of the Russian Federation. It also calls, you know, um, the the buyers were citizens of the uh, aggressor country in the article. And it it may just be a a translation. Do you think they specifically went after him because he was selling, you know, his information
1: um, to Russians? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, think about it. This guy is essentially a traitor. You know, you are in the middle of a war. You're a citizen of Ukraine and you're basically selling the enemy information that could be used by the aggressor to dox and identify potential targets. That's not a good thing at all, especially not in a wartime scenario. And I'm sure they would have caught him anyway, you know, with, with, uh, you know normally without a war, you know, wartime scenario in place, but this is the wrong time. Like, he really, put a, he really set himself up for failure in this one.
0: So I mentioned that that Ukraine story was uh, the last one. That's not, Hector, I lied to you. Um, oh, man. I, sk- let's, let's, let's I skipped one of my, the favorite one you sent over me this week. I found this <laughs> one so intriguing. So yeah. it was titled Capturing the Flag with GPT-4. Um, and this is a security researcher, um, uh, Mika Lee. Sorry if I mispronounce your name. M-I-C-A-A-H. Micah, how would you pronounce it? Micah?
1: Well, I just pronounced it Micah Lee. Okay. That's how I, I thought the name was, All yeah. Right. Well, I, I'm horrible with names. I'm really bad with names. Same. <laughs> Anyways...
0: <laughs> He went out to a hacking conference out in San Francisco. It's B-Sides. B-Sides San Francisco
1: 2023. Shout out to B-Sides. Yeah. Have you ever been? Well, I have friends that run a couple, yeah. and I've, I've always wanted to go to one of the events, but I, I hear good things about the B-Side conferences.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I have too. I've never been myself, but uh, but I have heard very good things. Well, anyways, so he was out at B-Sides, and there was some hacking challenges, and, you know, he thought maybe, well, I could probably do these. I'm, uh, he's a smart guy, uh, but let's see what... Ch- what uh, chat GPT could do. Um, so he used gpt 4 which is uh, you know, the latest generation of the uh, open AI's uh, chat And he had some very, very good success. And he also documented um, his interactions with uh, gpt 4
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I read through this. I, I loved it. And I immediately sent it your way. Because I thought, wow, this is, one, a great write-up. And it was good to see what the um, generative language model used here in this case gpt four was able to deal with what it was able to do, what it failed at or where it failed at, and where it was successful like this is great data, great information to look at and just absorb as as a researcher but as but also as someone that's interested in AI
0: yeah I, I think this is a great article for our listeners that maybe they kind of know what AI is, but they don't exactly they've never used it they don't know. Uh, you know, how the feedback goes back and forth. But it's literally almost like a conversation. Like he asked, can I do something with this? And it gave a response and, it, you know, it was, it was thoughtful in the response, it seemed like. And he's like, well, that part doesn't work. If well, What if we change this? Could we do anything different here? And it came back with, yes, if you change this and all that. And it even wrote the code for him.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome and scary at the same time.
0: It It, it is. I, I think it's going to be, you know, I think it's going to, you know, be a challenge. Um, it's it is a little bit scary of the interaction. I mean, it was almost as like he had a room full of coders and hackers on the other end answering his questions live.
1: Yeah. Well, I've seen a lot of great tools come out. I was looking at on I was looking on GitHub yesterday. Um somebody released something called Pentest GPT where, you know, you're able to kind of, you know, query or prompt the language model for potential pen test paths, um, which I thought was very cool. you know, we're gonna see more and more of this. I'm I'm honestly I'm not I'm not as scared as other people are. I've seen on Twitter folks are kind of freaked out by stuff like this. I'm happy for this. I, I, I see this as progress. Now you know now folks are gonna be forced to deal with and, and I'm really talking about security, right? The folks are gonna be forced to deal with, you know, lingering security issues that they're not really dealing with, or they were not aware of by using these tools. So big shout out to Micah Lee here for coming up with this, uh, with this project. It was a good, it was a good write-up for sure.
0: It was interesting to see that GPT-4 is uh cybersecurity conscious, um, on a couple of different responses to, to, to Micah, uh, he, he wrote back, uh, um, wrote code, and even warned of security risks if you're loading data from untrusted sources. So he gave a warning like, hey, uh, here's the code and you're, you could be running it, but you got to trust where it's coming from.
1: Oh, yeah. It was like a serialization issue. I, I thought that was pretty fascinating that it, it even gave a warning to that. Yeah. That was cool.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely recommend everyone to read this article and uh, read this blog post um, because it, it really is a, a insight into exactly what um, the AI... You could do, and you know, maybe it scares you. Maybe it doesn't scare you. Maybe you're on Hector's side, or maybe you're a little bit more <laughs> yeah. on uh, some other people. So, but did you see that the the AI guy from Google, the 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 Godfather of AI, they mm-hmm. called him. He just left, and then he's he scared shitless.
1: Yeah. So even with like when it comes to AI, people's concerns about it, I understand that the lack of regulation is a concern for people. There's also an uh, alternate argument to that, right? The, the opposing argument is well, every other country is involved now. So if we start to regulate our usage of AI here in the research, um, we're going to fall behind extremely quickly, like almost almost immediately. You know, but this is nothing new. People have been talking about this for years, right? Uh, I'm kind of surprised that he left now versus two years ago. Two years ago, I remember reading an article. I mean, this was posted back in uh, 2001. Uh, sorry, 2021. This gentleman by the name of David Cantor, he made a, a comment in an interview saying that. You know AI training performance right now at that moment had managed to drastically outstrip Moore's law. Okay, okay, that's interesting. But then you go further. Last year, 2022, back in March, you had The Verge. They came out with an article. I would recommend, and I'll pass you the link, uh, Chris. But they came out. They came out with an article that described how some researchers had used AI at that moment um, to come up with 40,000 new possible chemical weapons in uh, in about six hours. Yeah, so you had AI looking at, you know, probably all sorts of different data sets and looking for new ways to kill people. <laughs> and, That's what's making everybody fucking nervous. <laughs> yeah, but AI can only get you to that point where it may give you a potential cocktail to kill someone. It's still going to require a human to fucking pull the trigger. For you know? now, for now. For now, but, you know, it's a great tool. Let's take advantage of it. But I, I think regulation, is. it might be too late for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this guy may be leaving now versus two years ago because it's hot now. It's it's sort of hot to be a kind of against
1: AI. Yes. Well, you know, the funny part is, and this is just me being cynical, so I apologize for the audience. Just bear with me. I feel like anybody that's, that's probably going to downplay or, sorry, kind of contradict or counter AI now are probably going to get involved in it and make their own products. <laughs> Uh, and say, hey, look, here's my language model, and it's totally safe, and it's slightly cheaper than, you know, uh, OpenAI's, um, um, you know, uh, iteration. So, yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting next few years. I know that there was a, um, like, a famous, I would say, the year of singularity. Have you heard that, Chris? I have, yes. The estimated year of singularity is about 2045 to 2050. I think we're probably going to reach by next week.
0: (laughs) At this rate, definitely. Yeah, at this rate, for sure. All right, Hector, those are great stories. I enjoyed talking to you about them. But now let's answer some listener questions. Let's do it. If you want to reach out to Hector and I, reach us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Love getting your feedback. Love getting your questions. Actually, this one came in on our Hacker in the Fed uh, Twitter account. Oh. Hacker in the Fed, can you guys explain why dot .xyz domains get blocked or land in corporate spam
1: buckets? I would give you my perspective from the researcher and someone that has to has to speak with CISOs and security engineers kind of deal with tech, technical controls and Chris, of course, you give your perspective. So, XYZ domains for one are cheap. Two, they're probably blocked. If you're having issues with with blocking for example, They're probably blocked on the DNS level. Um, DNS categorization is a thing. I would love to see more clients using DNS categorization. You can find that in like IBM's solutions. You can find that in like Cisco solutions. But basically what categorization does here is it has, you know, whatever product you're using may have like a historical data sheet um, or some sort of database domains that are categorized. For example, Amazon.com may be considered an e-commerce site while aws.amazon.com or similar may be considered, you know, a utility, right? Now, when you, when, if you're in a corporate network and you try to reach out to one of those sites, your DNS query is going to go through that system and it's either going to allow you or block you, okay? Um, if there's a rule within that, those, uh, those databases or software that says, look, we're blocking all XYZ domains or we're only accepting .com and .org and .net domains, then that also explains the blockage. It may not be specific to DNS categorization, it could be specific to a, a rule-based system. Now, since XYZ domains are so cheap, a lot of people have bought them for scams and spams, and so uh, you have a lot of service providers that say, look, you know, we're going to score an XYZ domain or email from XYZ domain very low, okay? And because it's low, more than likely it's gonna hit the spam box rather than your inbox. And that's just the way it is. The same applies like Google, Google search engine. If you guys ever do SEO or search engine optimization, the one thing you'll notice is that if you buy uh, a domain for your business and it's .com, you're going to get categorized in Google very quickly. Now, if you buy, uh, you know, one of those lesser known top level domains, like let's say .cc or .xyz, you're going to notice that you're not going to get good results from, um, from the search engines. So, yeah, there's rules and technical controls all across um, from you and your network all the way to service providers. That's my take. What about you, Chris? What do you think?
0: Yeah, no, I think you hit it right in the head with Ted's question. You know, I I think it's because XYZ has a bad history behind it. It's been used in so many nefarious things um, that it's just kind of been blocked. Doing some research, I I saw that, you know, it's always been registered in China. So they're not going to answer like law enforcement, uh, you know, subpoenas to find, you know, bad domains and that sort of thing. Um, So it probably just got a a bad uh, reputation and it got blacklisted. Um, I saw an article that a guy had, uh, he was a researcher was testing it and he had sent a few different links um, through iMessage. And the link that had a a a URL to uh, a .xyz domain, iMessage didn't even send it through. I don't know if that's still true, um, Interesting, but yeah, it was, it's, you know, it's be even being blocked on there be, just because um, the historical, you know, data behind it, you know, so associated with, with, with cyber criminals. And I did notice also a lot of uh, crypto spaces moving over to dot X, Y, Z.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But you know, there's something you said right now that's interesting to me. Um, a lot of those services like WhatsApp and, you know, Facebook and so on, when you're messaging people back and forth, these services usually include a link scanning system, kind of like by proxy. So when you send a link, let's say you have a super secret link, and you send it to me over WhatsApp, or maybe not WhatsApp. Let's say, uh, uh, let's take a better, a better example. Let's say, what's the Microsoft one for, for no, Skype. There you go. Uh, you send a message through Skype that has a super secret sensitive link. If you notice, if you rather, if you monitor your access logs for that web server, you're going to notice that there's going to be a Skype IP address hitting that link before you even get access to it, before you even click on it. So, you know, the blocking not only could be from the domain TLD, Chris, it could also be that a link scanning engine had identified a potential issue and blocked it outright. So there's there's a lot of stuff happening in the back end. That's kind of my point of kind of giving you guys this breakdown. There are a lot of tools that are being used by these services um, to try to mitigate attacks. And um, it just it just gets better and better each day. I feel like especially the bigger companies, Chris, they've they've done a lot of investment into like link scanning and stuff like
0: that. Hopefully that answers Ted's question. So our next question is from Stuart. And I think this is specifically for you, Hector. He talks about that he listened to an episode, ironically, with uh, today's episode, uh, about <laughs> yeah. the T-Mobile hack. It sounds like Stuart reaches out to us or listens every time we talk about T-Mobile. So and he heard Hector mention using Burp Suite to intercept HTTP traffic. Uh, his question is, What's the advantage of using a tool like Burp Suite instead of simply using the network tab on your browser? Is it just having an interface that makes it easier to review a large amount of information, or are there other features that make that tool better than others for researchers?
1: Yeah, I mean, big shout-out to Stuart. That that is a great question. You know, you could theoretically use uh, the network tab in, in your browser to kind of, you know, identify network requests that are going back and forth, and you could probably play around with it, maybe even replay requests, I myself have used a browser only with the Fiddler 2 extension back when I had to use Windows. Big shout out to the Fiddler guys, especially the original developer, he's really cool on Twitter. But you would use something like a Fiddler extension on your browser, which acts similar to the network tab. The difference is that you could start to intercept and replay and modify requests on the fly. Now, the reason why I mentioned Burp Suite, I'm a big fan of of Port Swigger and and the rest of the team and and, and the product itself. Yes, it has a great interface, It may not be completely intuitive for everybody, but it works. And they have a very robust extension ecosystem. There are extensions for almost any facet of pen testing for web applications imaginable. And it's not only specific to web applications. You could use it for interfacing with binary protocols. And there's a lot that you can do with it um, that's really great. There's also automatic checks. So let's say you are a seasoned developer, you have some experience with security, you invest in a Burp Suite license, um, and then you're doing kind of like a QA on your web application. You could run Burp Suite in the background, let it do all those automatic checks. You can enable some extensions. And then by the time you're done with your session, you're looking at the results, like, wow, there, there are some potential security issues that we need to address post-haste. You know, much, I would say much more or more mature organizations may include that as part of the development cycle. Okay. Um, or they may use static analysis tools or inter- interactive analysis tools, which are very cool. Shout out to Compass. And there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of great tools out there. But yes, Burp Suite is dope. Um, yes, it is expensive. But I could re- I would recommend that you use the Community Edition. It works. And it's free.
0: So, actually, that was a great question from Stuart. And uh, I think you brought that up, that it was such <laughs> a great question from Stuart. Uh, you may have I, know you, I,
1: know, I know where you're headed.
0: <laughs> you son of a bitch. So, Lucas from the UK. Uh, he sent over an interesting picture. Um, and it was a design he put up and put on a shirt that says, that's a great question. Um, apparently, your catchphrase is catching on. So let me ask you, if, if I get a shirt that's made up that says, that's a great question, would
1: you wear it? Absolutely. Oh, perfect. And a big wait, a big wait, wait, sub- wait! Was me asking yeah. that a great question? That is a great question. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll say shout out, shout out to my boy Lucas here. I mean, I you know it's funny because when I when when I first started doing public speaking and and just interfacing with people in general, I always had a fear of like fucking up or being repetitive, you know. And I I, I spent a lot of time trying to avoid that. But you know what? This works out. And I'm glad the audience likes it. I'm, I'm glad they're not roasting me too bad you know, over the, uh, the use of that phrase.
0: Dude, so. I, I think people wanting to wear merchandise with, you, with a catchphrase of yours on it is a flattering.
1: Hey, I'm flattered, man. Shout out to Lucas. Yeah, for so, sure. So,
0: Lucas and anybody else out there. So, I will tell you that I have some, catch, some uh, Hacker in the Fed sweatshirts. I have some pullovers. Nice. I, have, I have a North Face jacket uh, with, with it on there. It's, it's, it's nice. So, I sort of pimp the product when I'm out there. But if the other people are interested, yeah, Might be something we might think about doing. So just reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com if that's something, uh, if merchandise is something that you guys would be interested in. So we'll gauge the audience. If there's a large enough response, we'll probably put something together. And I do owe Hector a hat. He ordered a yes. uh, flat rim uh, black Hacker in the Fed hat. So listen, um, you got to represent. I'm I, with it. I'll get it to you. I promise. Last question is from mm-hmm. Victor from Denmark. And I will say Victor was one of the people that also wrote in and loves our banter. So I'm glad we were able to add it back to the top of the show for you, Victor. Victor said he saw a TikTok about a mother uh, that said she had a scam call coming in from a voice model of her daughter crying. Uh, And a search of the web told Victor that it it seems like it's a new tactic. He was wondering, can you fight these attacks? Hector, have you ever seen anything like this? Uh, Some social engineering to make it think like it's a family member?
1: I've heard or read that some of these attacks may be taking place. I can't imagine that folks are going to use this or AI for social engineering. 100. percent I mean, look, we're still we 30 years later, we still have the password problem. Okay,
0: <laughs> 30. I think it's getting up it's like 40 or 45 years. 40, 40, you <laughs> know, yeah, 40,
1: 50 years going back to Dennis Ritchie and them creating a multi-user system. Yeah, we still have a password issue. Unfortunately, we're, we're probably going to be nowhere near dealing with, you know, AI social engineering. And if so, if people are working on, on tools or apps for that, kudos. But, you know, how, how are you going to identify potential social engineering like this when there are dozens? Uh, well, right now, I, I know of a few of a handful, but I'm sure over time there'll be probably dozens of different language models and different tools and different audio codecs. It's going to be hard for one, any one app to identify and deal with this. So if you're a parent and you get a call like that, man, just ask the right questions as, if you could get these questions in. And hopefully, based off the answers, if you get any, you'll be able to identify that this is either your daughter or it's somebody fucking around.
0: I'll tell you that you a know, long time ago when I you know, first started the Bureau, I set up with my wife a password, a word that only her and I knew um, that we shared. In, in, and we, we used it one time. So after Silk Road was taken down, um, some people decided to put a, uh, a price on, on my life and my children's life and put it out on the dark web. Um, Fuck. Whether it was real or not real, I don't know. But it, I took it as a threat and a, and a serious threat. And I, I locked down my kid's school. I called over and, locked, and did a lockdown. That was an odd situation. Um, but then I had to call my wife and, and let her know that her children's lives were in danger, which was a really, really shitty call. But in order to make her realize that, that I'm talking and what I'm telling is real, I used that password. It was the only time I ever used that password. Wow. Um, you know, it was very emotional. It's emotional just to even retell that story. Um, but maybe some, some people want to think about it. Maybe it would be good in their family to, you know, only have the, a specific word, never use it, you know, unless it, it really has to, you know, in a situation like this. Um, someone calls you up just, you know, but but you know you have to also take it serious. If if your kid is screaming on the phone and they don't remember the password, um, you know do like what That's, Hector said. You know, it, take some probing questions. But you know also remember don't do extreme things. There's not much you can do if if your kid call, kid is calling up screaming. You know, call nine one one. That's a life threatening event. If you if your life is being threatened or someone you love their life is being threatened, call
1: nine one one. That's right. And by the way, I want to say that uh, I would have felt. Very bad for anyone that would have tried some shit because your wife is gangster, bro. Your wife, <laughs> that lady, that's a tough lady. So, you know, but yeah, I'm glad everything worked out. And that's such a great idea. Have, you know, a secret password or, you know, something that would help identify your loved ones. 100%.
0: Yeah, not just identify, but it snaps people in place. Hey, if I say this, you know, shit's hitting the fan. This is real. Exactly. So, you know, it's good to have. Victor had one more question. He says, it seems like AI researchers quickly found ways of using GPT-3 and 4 to create viruses. Very fitting for this episode. Uh, Is this something (laughs) that the FBI and agencies are looking at? And how do you think it's going to change and and treat the landscape? I I, I think we covered the landscape stuff, but I can tell you for 100%, U.S. government law enforcement agencies are definitely looking at this. I have uh, been contacted in the last week about uh, about this from very high-ranking U.S. government officials.
1: Yeah, and the one thing I'll say, this is for the audience. I mean, look, I I, I myself have fun with ChatGPT and similar. You know that law enforcement is going to be watching this shit. You know, you know at some point, if someone starts querying and prompting ChatGPT for instructions on how to make, you know, a new chemical weapon, and it just so happens that that compound was used in an attack, trust and believe me, your ass is grass. Like, you know, this is not a joke. You know, it, it's it's cool. To interface with these kind of, uh, of technologies, but yeah, I, I think, and, and Chris, you know better than I, but I'm pretty sure I, w- I would have assumed the FBI is looking at this.
0: Yeah, 100, the they are. But you know, I, I will say why why Victor would question something like this. So the evolution of like the FBI and law enforcement. You know, I came onto the squad in New York, and it had just become a cyber squad. You know, cyber was just spinning up. We were at the biggest field office in the FBI, New York just starting to have cyber specific squads you know in cyber division and that sort of thing and you know it took uh you know a guy in my squad this guy Ilwan yum to bring he was the very first law enforcement officer uh in, in the federal system to even discuss cryptocurrencies and they had been out for three or four months so historically you know the fbi wasn't great about you know hey let's look at a new thing and look how much crypto has changed you know cyber and cybersecurity, security you know we talked about ransomware and paying ransomware you know that's cryptocurrency um you know it, it's not the immediate reaction you know now there's cryptocurrency squads there's whole de- departments in in doj um that, that just looks at cryptocurrency but i'm going to guess that you know the Five, six, seven years—it kind of took law enforcement to get on top of cryptocurrency. It's really sped up. I mean, we talked about how fast AI is moving. You know, law enforcement is moving at the same speed. I can tell you for a fact there are a a more than a few people in law enforcement looking at AI right now and and how it's going to be used uh, against American citizens.
1: Wow. Yeah. No, that's that's serious stuff. You know, and I got to tell you, man. You know, now that I I sit here and I listen to you, kind of talk about this and. Get your perspective, you know I wonder if, if we're gonna see any improvements in the landscape or or even how people deal with security in general, we saw that you know a couple of days ago Google came out with um, the deployment of pass keys, which by the way, if you guys have Gmail accounts or Google workspace accounts, definitely take advantage of the passkey system if you don't have a security key, okay pretty solid now. I, I like to see improvements. That's why that's why I'm open to like new technologies, Chris. Right. That's why with AI, I'm not I'm not scared of it. I, I want to see it do and and perform and do great things. But I hope that organizations start taking their security serious and you know, start to to include a lot of these concepts in their own personal lives. You know what I mean? There's a lot to learn from it. And again, this industry is so young still that we probably have well I was about to say unfortunately, but Chris, I think, unfortunately for us, we probably have another 10 years of nonstop discussions on this topic. You know?
0: I think it'll keep the podcast alive.
1: Yeah. yeah, <laughs> we, 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 we'll, we'll be like old men still talking about cyber issues. So,
0: Speaking of keeping the podcast alive, please share yeah. it with your friends and family. Put it out on social media. that You heard another great episode of Hacker in the Fed. There's a new episode every Thursday. Download and subscribe whenever, wherever you get your podcasts. Hector, I enjoyed our conversation today. Hopefully people put the show out there on social media and tell their friends to listen, um, and we can grow our audience bigger and bigger and make people aware of making security-conscious decisions.
1: That's right. It's been a pleasure. Great conversation, and I'm glad that we got the banter back. Big shout-out to uh, to the emails that came in.
0: Yes. they. Uh, in the words of <laughs> one of my closest friends, they were all great questions.
1: There you go. <laughs> Cheers, Fred. Cheers.